Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. Good to be able to preach. It's especially good to see the kids up here for Palm Sunday. Isn't that good? I was growing up, I used to always love those days when you get the palm branches. You go home and pull them apart and get in all kinds of trouble with your parents. But, you know, it's good. It's good for the kids to have those memories. And it's good because for us, Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, is really the, the week before we celebrate Easter, which is Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. And this is sort of a really important time for us as a church family because we get to begin to think about the fact that Jesus, we remember, goes into Jerusalem and what would be today on Palm Sunday, but he is betrayed on Thursday night. He dies on Friday in our place for our sins. But it's not a tragic end. It's the better end because he rises from the grave on Sunday. And my friends, the empty tomb changes everything, doesn't it? Yes. And that is what we're going to be celebrating next week, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So make sure you're here for that. We are not on the resurrection yet. We are here going to be celebrating Palm Sunday today. We're going to be studying Palm Sunday today, also known as the triumphal entry. So I'd ask you to get out your outlines. We're going to go ahead and do some notes this morning as we work our way through these things. It was after three years when Jesus was going into Jerusalem. He's going into Jerusalem to the praises of the people, to the cheering of the people. Now on the outside, as with the triumphal entry that we're going to study today, it looked like things were going extremely well. People were super enthusiastic for Jesus. But on the inside, in their hearts, the truth was that they had fake faith for Jesus. Their hearts were not really truly following Jesus. As we're going to see this morning, what they wanted Jesus to be and what they wanted Jesus to do was something completely different than the reason he came. They wanted Jesus to be a political leader. They wanted Jesus to free them from Roman oppression. But that's not why Jesus came. He came to free us from an oppressor, an oppressor far greater than Rome. He came to free us from the ultimate oppressor of all, sin, and its result is death. He came to free us from the oppression that is behind all oppressors, sin itself. But they misunderstood that. They were following Jesus for the wrong reason. See, the real problem in this world is sin and death, and that's the reason that Jesus came. It's not systemic racism. It's not white supremacy, it's not China, it's not Russia, it's not somebody different in the White House. The real problem, the problem behind all problems is sin. It's our rebellion against God. It's our broken relationship with God. And that is what Jesus came to save us from. Now, if you misunderstand this, and if you end up following Jesus for the wrong reason, thinking that if you follow Jesus, that means your life is going to be easy. If you follow Jesus, then all of your problems are going to go away. You'll be just like the people who cheered for Jesus in the triumphal entry. 
following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And the end, when you follow him for the wrong reason, is complete destruction. Let's go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be uh, studying the triumphal entry. I'll be reading verses 28 through 44. It's a long passage. Go ahead and stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along with your eyes in the copy of the scriptures you have in front of you as I read Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Well, why are you untying the colt? And they said, Well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. We're going to break this... Uh, passage into four pieces. We'll look at the first verse, which gives us the background, and then we'll work our way through the rest of the story. So let's begin with the background. It's sort of a long introduction on this one, but I think it's an important one to set the scene. Just the first verse, it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Go ahead and show me the map if you could up there. Got a map coming, I think. No map? There it is. Okay. Uh, this is, you might remember this one when we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus spent most of his time up north in, in the area of Galilee. You can see what he did is he came down. He went south. He was going to Jerusalem, which is the circle on the bottom left-hand side. But we know what he did is he actually went through the area of Perea on the right-hand side, and then he crossed the Jordan River as he began to head up to Jerusalem. 
Now this was a very common way that people from the north headed down to the south, up through Jericho, climbing up that direction, and it was Passover season. So Jesus was not on the road alone. There were literally thousands of people on the road on the way to Jerusalem. But Jesus had an especially large crowd with him. His notoriety at this point, after three years of ministry, was extremely high. It was at its peak. After three years, he had pretty much, should we say, banished most sickness and illness in Israel. From north to south, he had healed literally thousands of people. Everyone wanted to be around him because of the constant healing he was doing. Not only was he an amazing healer that drew people into him, but he was an amazing teacher. You may remember when we studied the Gospel of Mark that he would sometimes go out into the wilderness. People would go out into the wilderness to hear him teach. They would be there for days without food just to hear him teach. That's a good teacher. Now if I go beyond lunch, you guys let me know. But not Jesus. They would go without food to hear him teach. But as I mentioned, um, he, he went through the area of Jericho, and he was beginning to climb up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he had stopped in Jericho and was there for two days. And we covered this when we studied the Gospel of Mark. Remember in Jericho, there were two blind beggars there. One of them was called Bartimaeus. We nicknamed him a blind Bart. And what did Jesus do? He healed both of these blind beggars. Not just giving them physical sight, but the truth is he also gave them spiritual sight because they recognized Jesus also for who he is. Not just a healer, but they recognized him as the very son of God. So you have all these people who are following Jesus from his three years of healing. He's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, and then he healed the two blind beggars, and more people began following him. But if you remember from the Gospel of Mark, there was somebody else in the area of Jericho. Remember Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector? Zacchaeus, one of the most hated men in town, a Jew who had switched sides and was working with the Romans collecting taxes and tax collectors. They just didn't collect the taxes, but they added their own little surcharge on top, above and beyond that. So he was rich. Filthy rich, and part of that was extortion money. But Jesus didn't avoid him. Jesus spent time with him. Jesus had dinner at his house. And there was a miracle that happened that was just as much of a miracle as the sight for the two blind beggars. It was the chains of Zacchaeus' heart and life. Zacchaeus began trusting in Jesus. In fact, you know the evidence of his repentance because he says, I'm going to give back the money that I've stolen from everyone, no matter who it was. And not just the money I stole, but I'm going to give back four times the amount of money I stole. That's genuine repentance, isn't it? And when someone like Zacchaeus is giving money back, that word gets around just as fast as two healed blind beggars who can now see. Are you getting the picture that everyone wants to be around Jesus? There's a huge pile of people around Jesus that's getting bigger and, and, and bigger. And if you think that uh, 
That's a lot of people. If you read the Gospel of John, like we, or, excuse me, the Gospel of Mark as we studied, you know that just before this, a few weeks before this, Jesus had made a special trip to Bethany. Bethany is just up the road. He hasn't quite gotten there yet. He'll get there today as we study this. There in Bethany was Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, who had died, and Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks prior. So you got a dead guy walking around that area, talking to everybody about how Jesus raised him from the dead. And do you think everybody wants to talk to Jesus now? Do you think Jesus is like mega popular? Yes! Everybody wants to be around Jesus. A huge pile of people was around Jesus. And what were they hoping Jesus would do? That he would heal more people and give them sight like they did to, blind, to the two blind beggars? Nope. Were they hoping that Jesus would change the hearts of people like he did for Zacchaeus? Nope. What everyone wanted Jesus to do was to overthrow the Romans. They wanted Jesus to make Israel the capital of the world. By the way, uh, Jesus will one day return. And Jesus will one day be large and in charge of everything. Revelation tells us that he will return as the rider on the white horse. But that's then. That's not now. Today, we're finding he is going to Jerusalem not to overthrow the Romans, which would actually be too small of a thing for him to do. He is going into Jerusalem to take care of the biggest problem of all, the problem that is behind all problems, the problem that led to death, the problem that led to our separation from God. He is going into Jerusalem to take care of the issue of the problem of sin. Now, he hasn't been hidden about this. If you remember in the Gospel of Mark, three times he very clearly told his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem to die. But they're dense as a rock on that one. The crowds are dense as a rock on that one. All they can think of is politics. Now, let me just mention something else. We know that prior to this, uh, Jesus has really discouraged large gatherings of, and worships, uh, worship times of him. When people began to focus around him, he seemed to just sort of slip away and he wasn't there. He didn't draw people in like this. Now, why did he change tactics? Why is he now all of a sudden allowing all this worship? And maybe even you would say encouraging all this worship. We know that from the very beginning of his ministry, and we studied this in the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders wanted him dead. They saw him as a threat. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity. They, they already decided three years ago to bump him off. But the nice part was Jesus, for the most part, stayed up north in Galilee. And so even though he had a, a large following, he wasn't always in their face because most of the religious leaders were down south in Jerusalem. So if you keep a little distance between the two, even though they hate Jesus, they can sort of tolerate Jesus. But now things are different. Jesus is not up north in Galilee. He has gone down south. He is in Jerusalem. In fact, he is going into Jerusalem in the religious leaders' home turf 
And now we have him encouraging and even allowing a massive celebration of him, a massive cheering of him, thousands of people around him. Why is he doing this? Here's what I find interesting. If you look at um, what is Matthew 26, we find that in Matthew 26, the religious leaders had planned to arrest Jesus during Passover, but not kill him till after Passover. That wouldn't work too well because the plan and the will of God would always that Jesus would die during Passover at the same time the Passover lambs were slain. So Jesus sort of has to move the timeline up a little bit from their original intention. So what does he do? He infuriates them. He irritates them by letting people worship him. And so they get so frustrated with Jesus, they move their timeline up and want to kill Jesus earlier than they planned during Passover, not after Passover, which is one of the reasons I think he allows all this worship to sort of get under the skin of the religious leaders. Another thing to mention, this triumphal entry. I've given you the idea there's a lot of people around Jesus worshiping him. Now the question is, well, how many would it be? Now here we're going to get to some speculation and guesswork. So go easy on me if you don't agree with the numbers. But I'll do what I can to try and put some kind of numbers on this. We know that historically there is... Uh, written records that 10 years after this Passover, the current time now is around 30 AD, 10 years later, we have in the historical record that 260,000 lambs were slain for Passover in Jerusalem. The average way it went was about one lamb for every 10 people. Sort of like figuring how you have the size of your turkey for Thanksgiving. Well, if you do the math on that, you could roughly say that means there's probably about 2 million people that were in or around Jerusalem for Passover 10 years later after this. That means there may have been 2 million people in and around Jerusalem at the time where Passover took place for Jesus. I don't know. It's just a rough estimate. Scholars say, well, maybe... 90% of the people that were there for Passover did not take place, did not take part in the triumphal entry. Maybe 10% of the people did. If 10% of the people welcomed Jesus, that's 200,000. If 5% of the people, that's only 5% of the people welcomed Jesus in the triumphal entry, that would be 100,000. My friends, there are a lot of people here Jesus is incredibly popular. We must not lose sight of the size of this celebration as Jesus comes in. That's the background. Let's jump into the text. Now, Jesus entered Jerusalem, we see, in a position of humility. Verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Let's go ahead and put a map up again. Got a map coming over. Okay, you can see right here, um, Jericho is in the valley. There's a hill climb. Jerusalem is there on the left. And Mount of Olives is right there. 
you, the idea is Bethany and Bethpage are just two miles outside of Jerusalem. They're both very small towns. In fact, we don't even know where Bethpage officially is. It was so small. We do know where Bethany is today. It's not called Bethany, by the way. It's called the city of Lazarus in Arabic today, named after its most important resident. Bethany means house of figs. Bethpage means house of dates or unripened dates. Of course, that's located right next to what's called the Mount of Olives, known as Olive Mountain. Does anybody have the idea there's farmers in the area? Yeah. House of dates, house of figs, olive mountain. And what Jesus does, by, oh, by the way, I should mention at this point that Bethany and Bethpage are on the east side of the Mount of Olives. So in Bethany and Bethpage, you cannot see Jerusalem. You need to continue to climb the mountain to get to the top of it, the crown of it, and then you can see Jerusalem and look down through the Kidron Valley, which will be important to us to understand as we get a little deeper into this. Jesus is most likely right around the city of Bethany, and he's going to send two of his apostles ahead of him into Bethpage. The story continues. And saying, go into the village in front of you, which is most likely Bethpage, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, they're to go into Bethpage, and they're to go get a colt, they'll see a colt, and they'll untie the colt and, and take it to Jesus. You've heard of a carjacking? This is called a colt jacking. And taking an, somebody's ride without permission. Here's interesting. How does Jesus know that when they go into the next town, there is going to be a colt tied up? How does he know these things? The answer simply is because Jesus is God. Jesus can see things that are taking place in other towns, in other villages, in other locations where he is not located at. Jesus could even see the future. He knows how the future will unfold. He has told his disciples that many times, that he is going to Jerusalem to die, and he's told them precisely how it will happen because Jesus is God. He can see these things. Jesus has a staggering amount of supernatural knowledge. It's evidence that Jesus is not just an ordinary person. Jesus is God. By the way, in Matthew chapter 21, which is a parallel passage of this, we find that Jesus says you won't just find a colt, but you'll find the mother of the colt. You'll find a donkey tied next to it. And by the way, this little colt has never been ridden. How would Jesus know that colt has never been ridden? Unless he's God. And he knows the kind of things that only God knows. Now, I want to just pause and just do a little application for this. Jesus knows about a cult in another village. He knows all about the history of that cult. It's never been ridden. 
You know what this reminds us of? That Jesus may not be exactly next to you, but he knows all about you. Not only that, but he knows your entire history. And he loves you. And he was going into Jerusalem to die for you. Jesus knows you completely, and yet he loves you fully. Enough to die for you. Folks, isn't that what we all want? Somebody who knows us completely, yet even when they know us completely, they still love us fully. Isn't that what we want in a spouse? Somebody that we can be real with? To be completely transparent in our heart with, yet they still love us? Folks, that may be what we always look for and desire in a spouse, but I have to tell you, that is what we have in our God. Jesus Christ knows us completely and loves us fully. Let's continue in the story. Jesus doesn't just know about the cult in the cult's history, but he knows about what will happen as soon as the cult is taken. If, you know, as soon as you go to take it, if anybody says to you, why are you doing it? Just simply say, the Lord has need of it and all the problems will go away. That's all you got to say. And that's exactly what we find happens as we go to the next section. So those who were sent away, and f- so those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, well, the Lord has need of it. Everything happened just the way Jesus said it would. By the way, nothing surprises Jesus. Nothing surprised Jesus in this final week of his life. Nothing was unknown to Jesus. Everything happened exactly the way Jesus said it would. And in case you think that maybe I'm taking this too far, the idea that Jesus knows this cult and he knows all about it without anybody telling him about it, let me just provide some more support and evidence for this. You go to the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 2. You find Jesus meets Nathanael. And what do we find? We find this. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, Well, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What happened under the fig tree? I have no idea. Nathaniel knows, and he thought he was the only one who knew. But Jesus knew, because Jesus knows everything that is going on, even things that are apart from him when he's not near them. I like the way John summarizes it. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a what was in man. So Jesus does not just know the way the future will unfold. Jesus does not just know things that are happening in other places and other locations like Nathaniel and the cult, but Jesus knows our very hearts. 
that's the kind of thing that only God can do. And that's who Jesus is. Let's continue in the story. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on it. And they set Jesus on it. Essentially, they made a, a makeshift saddle for this little colt, throw their jackets on him. Incidentally, Luke doesn't tell us this, the, that other gospel writers do. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy was from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, 500 years earlier. This is what Zechariah said would happen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is going in, I'll say it again, to Jerusalem to die. He is going in to take care of the problem of sin, which is the problem behind all problems. The problem that every single one of us need a solution for. Because sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what condemns us to the lake of fire forever. That is the solution we need. And Jesus is going to provide not a political solution, but this much greater solution. The solution of sin. The story continues. The people, though, expressed hollow adoration for Jesus. Now, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. What's the big deal about spreading their cloaks on the road? You have to go back to the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 tells us that when someone was proclaimed king, or somebody was essentially anointed king, what people would do is they'd throw their jackets on the road or under that person's feet. It was a way of saying that we submit to you. We are letting you rule over us. So what they are doing is they are recognizing Jesus' right to rule over them. But remember, he is going to Jerusalem to die. But they think he's going to Jerusalem to be king and to overthrow the Romans. That's where there's a big mistake in this. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Go ahead and give us the, the photo. This is from the very top of the Mount of Olives. When you get over top of it, you can see into the Kidron Valley, and you can see right there where the temple would have been. That's actually not the temple. That's the Dome of the Rock. That's, that's another story. The original temple is gone. But it was an impressive sight from that location because what you would see is you would see Herod's temple, which was marble on the side. It was white. It would have been the sort of close to noon at that time, it would have been blisteringly white, blindingly white. The temple also was covered in gold in many places, which would have reflected the sun. It would have been a beautiful, beautiful sight. And here is everyone, as he's coming down into the Kidron Valley, they're worshiping him. They're throwing their jackets under him. They're worshiping him because of the miracles they've seen. He's healed the sick. He's fed the hungry. He's calmed the storms. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. 
Zacchaeus is no doubt in that group. The two blind beggars are in that group. I think Lazarus is in that group. And look what else they are saying about Jesus. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now I told you that they are looking for a political leader. They're mistaking him for what he came to do. It says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 118, verse 26, which I know that Andy uh, shared with us during his devotional. Good. But there's also some background that we need to know. A hundred years earlier, Israel was under oppression. It was under Syrian oppression. The Syrians were ruling over them. There was a man named Judas Maccabeus who rose up, who overthrew the Syrians. He was a Jewish guy. And when he began his rebellion, this is the part of the psalm that they began to chant to him. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. And what they see, excuse me, this is clicking a lot today. What they're doing is they are wanting Jesus to be a Judas Maccabeus. Just as Judas Maccabeus overthrew the Syrians who were dominating Israel, they want Jesus to overthrow the Romans who are dominating Israel. That's what they're doing. That's what they're pushing for. But that's not why Jesus came. To overthrow the Romans at this point would be too small of a thing for Jesus to do. Let me say it again. He came to take care of the problem behind all problems. Folks, the Romans are no longer in power. But the problem behind all problems still exists. It needs to be taken care of. And that's what Jesus came to do. The problem of sin to restore us into our relationship with God and that we would find forgiveness. If you look at some of the other parallel passages, like Matthew 21, verse 8, we find that they were cutting branches off the trees and throwing them on the ground, not just their cloaks. The Gospel of John says that some of these branches they were cutting off and throwing on the ground were palm branches, which is where we get this whole idea of Palm Sunday. John chapter 12, verse 13 says this, And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're proclaiming him king. Do you think Caesar is going to like that in Rome? What do you think? No, no, not at all. This is, this is, this is a political thing. Hosanna, we, we've sometimes sing that. You know what Hosanna means? It means save us now. Be the king now. Rise up now. Jesus, we want you in office right now. Complete misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do. Now, he did come, and he was coming, but he was coming to save them from the ultimate problem of sin, not just Rome. John 11.57 says this, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. I threw that in there just for the fun of it. 
They, they thought that they would not be able to find Jesus when he arrived. Did anybody have trouble finding Jesus right now? Absolutely not. Everybody knew where Jesus was, but they couldn't arrest him because of the 200,000 people that are around him singing his praises, wanting him to be in office, wanting him to be the king. Let me come down to verse 39 in Luke. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're calling you king. Stop this. No, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He lets it continue to go on. Let's find out why. So lastly, Jesus condemned the city. He answered, I tell you, if these stones were silent, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these people stop worshiping me, he says, the very stones will cry out. What does that mean? Is he saying that if the people stop worshiping, the stones will literally get mouths and start speaking and start to worship him? That's what many times we think. Uh, that's not what I think it actually means. I'll explain to you what goes on here. What is going to happen at this moment we go from complete joy to total horror. We go from joy to complete destruction. Jesus is going to turn all of this on, his, on its head. Folks, this is the last time that the people praise and worship Jesus. You don't see that on Tuesday. You don't see that on Wednesday. You don't see praise and worship of Jesus on Thursday. And Friday, they're chanting something for Jesus, but it's not praise and worship. What are they chanting? Crucify him. All their worship at the beginning of the week was fake worship. It was empty worship. They were following Jesus for the wrong reason think that he was going to solve their political problems when he really came to solve a much deeper problem. Look what it, we see about the end of the week in Matthew 27. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, all said, let him be crucified. Barabbas was a murderer and an insurrectionist. They preferred to release a murderer instead of the Jesus where they were singing his worship and praises only days before. Now Jesus said if they stopped worshiping and praising him, the very stones would cry out. What does that mean? I mean, try to explain that. I think maybe a good way to begin to under, unpack that, understand that, comes from Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, Habakkuk is written, and it's talking about, in this section, about the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And it talks about how their very stones in their houses and the very wood in their houses would cry out against them. The Babylonians were very brutal people. They would you know, steal from others, they would take from others. In fact, the very things they built their houses with 
was stolen from others. And so you would look at the very fabrics of their buildings, and you could almost see where they stole it from. So the stones cried out sort of about their wickedness. This is why Habakkuk chapter 2 says this, For the stones will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. What Jesus is saying, he says, when the stones will cry out if they stop worshiping me. The very stones of this city will one day be a lasting testimony that they have rejected me as their Savior and King. A lasting testimony to their rejection of me. And then when they accepted me, they were worshiping me all for the wrong reasons. And we're going to see how this unpacks. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Incidentally, in Greek, there's a variety of words for weeping. You go to where Jesus wept for Lazarus, that's the normal word for weeping. This word for weeping is different. It is the strongest word in the Greek language. It is uncontrollable weeping. It is heaving. It is body convulsing weeping. Put yourself in this situation. 100, 200,000 people all singing praise to Jesus, throwing their jackets in front of Jesus, palm branches in front of Jesus, red carpet welcome, be the king, save us from Rome. And Jesus sees the city and he breaks out in tears, weeping for them because he knows that all of this worship is hollow. This worship is empty. They're following him and they want him for the wrong reasons. Just as Jesus could clearly see the cult in the next town, and just as clearly as Jesus could see Nathaniel under the tree, he can see what will happen to this city and these people because they followed him for the wrong reasons and they've ultimately rejected him. And this is what he says, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. What are the things that would make for peace with God? Repentance. It's this gospel message he's been preaching for the last three years. Repent of sin. Trust in God, trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, and have your hearts be made right with God. The blind men, the two blind men in Jericho experienced that. Zacchaeus experienced that. But for the rest of this massive crowd, they were completely blind to that, thinking that Jesus would be a political leader, and that is what they needed, a political solution. And this is what he says. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave, here it is, one stone upon another in you. 
Jesus says that because they have rejected him, this is what's going to happen. Your enemies will surround you. (laughs) Remember they wanted Jesus to free them from Roman oppression? They're tired of having Rome rule over them. This is around the year 30 AD. In 66 AD, the people of Jerusalem officially decided to stop paying taxes to Rome. They were done with it. They were fed up with it. The Romans began working with them. Can't we get you guys paying taxes? We can't, like, let in a massive city not pay taxes. It doesn't work that way. They refused to be reconciled. So in 70 AD, Titus Vespian brought his Roman legions. They surrounded the city, just like Jesus said. Incidentally, first they built, there was a wooden barricade they put around it. Because what you do to conquer a city is you starve it out. You cut off the food supply, you cut off the water supply if you can. Incidentally, the Jews initially burned down the wooden barrier that the the Romans put around it. So the Romans built another barrier they couldn't burn down. They hemmed them in. And then, what does it say? Your enemies will surround you. They will hem you in on every side, which is to squeeze you, sort of choke you, which is exactly what Titus Vespian did just a few years later. And ultimately, they will tear you to the ground, which is exactly what happened with Titus Vespian. When the people, after months, were starved, and there were tons of dead bodies in the streets. The Romans were able to break through the Jewish barricade. The Roman soldiers went through the streets. They killed everybody. They killed women. They killed children. They killed young. They killed old. Historical record is the only people they saved were the youngest and strongest men. You know what they saved them for? To die in the gladiatorial arena. That's what they saved them for. It was just horrid. And what the Romans decided to do, since Jerusalem was built primarily of stones, and the great temple, Herod's great temple, that took 80 years to build, that was built primarily of stones, that they would flatten the whole thing. Think about this. It took Herod 80 years to build this temple. The Temple Mount took 10 of those 80 years to build. It was built with 10,000 slaves for 10 years of labor. All stone. All of these, the Romans completely leveled to the ground except for what is the Wailing Wall, which is still there today. And it would be a lasting testimonial to what? That God's people rejected their Savior. And then when they followed him and they worshiped him, it was all for the wrong reasons. My friends, the stones still cry out, following Jesus for the wrong reason. And Jesus ends by saying this, this is all happening because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus went into the city on Palm Sunday, but they all wanted him for the wrong reason. When he came to destroy the ultimate enemy, the enemy of sin. Here's my challenge for you. Today is your day of visitation. 
why have you been following Jesus? Thinking that he is the one who's going to all of a sudden make you successful in life? That if you follow Jesus, you're not going to have any problems in life? That's so easy to think that if I follow Jesus this way, that he owes me something the other way. That's not the reason he came. He came to solve the problem of sin. Have you confessed your sin to him? Have you followed him no matter where it may take you, no matter where it may cost you? That's what Jesus came, and that's why we celebrate him. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we're reminded in the triumphal entry in the Gospel of Luke that it is so easy to follow you for the wrong reasons. It is so easy to think that the problems in our world that really matter are political. That if we just had somebody different in the White House or somebody different in, uh, in some kind of judicial branch of government that all of our problems would go away. When the real thing that we need solved is the issue of our sin and our relationship restored with you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for sending your Son to solve the problem behind all problems. May we be men and women who see sin as the real issue in life and Jesus as the one who provides the solution for that issue. May we follow you for the right reasons. May we not neglect this day of visitation where the gospel has been presented to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.